Welcome to Episode 7 of Side Streets, a podcast about the history and geography of London. I'm Alan Hertz, newly retired professor of humanities at Holt International Business School. Despite my accent, I've been prowling London and learning about its past for over 40 years. Side Streets is a Black Lab media production, and my producer and editor is Wilhelm Schenk. Last time, we explored the wonders of Georgian London with Mirza Abul Hassan Khan, the first diplomatic envoy from Iran to the United Kingdom. In this season's last set of episodes, I will move away from places and people to things, in particular to some of London's public memorials. And I will explore some questions about these objects. What can they tell us about London's sense of its own history? How do they relate to their subjects? their locations, their origin stories, the wider world. Before I focus on particular examples, let me consider the subject in general. Public memorials have fascinated me for decades. One of their strangest, saddest features is that they are such obvious, conspicuous failures. They are meant to remind us of the significance, maybe even the greatness of certain people or events, but most of us Most of the time, pay no attention to them. We walk past the plaques, the statues, the long columns of the dead without a conscious thought. Another important feature intrigues me. Memorials have a history, and that history reflects changing cultural attitudes to particular people and events, to how and why they occur, and how we should feel about them. For example, In London, at least, war memorials have changed utterly. Until the late 19th century, they commemorated victory by celebrating leaders. Nelson's column in Trafalgar Square and the Duke of York's column halfway down the Mall are extravagant but typical examples. Some important elements are missing from this kind of memorial. Little credit is given to the men who actually did the fighting, and there is no mention of casualties. The two world wars were treated very differently. London boroughs, even large companies, the Prudential Insurance Memorials in Waterhouse Square are particularly impressive, built monuments which are basically decorated lists of the dead. The leaders still got their solitary statues, but the lists, not the leaders, are where wreaths get laid and speeches get made. Insofar as those monuments get our attention at all, They get us thinking about the sacrifice involved, not the quality of the commanders or the glory of the victories. A third aspect of these memorials has received a lot of attention lately, and rightly so. From Charlottesville to Bristol and in lots of other places too, people have protested that the wrong people have been celebrated and the wrong things have been written on the inscriptions at their feet. Monuments can last long after the admiration that inspired them has faded, long after historians and others have come to think about the people and events concerned in other less positive ways. Maybe great military tacticians who fought in bad causes no longer seem to deserve our admiration. Maybe great philanthropists who made their money in despicable ways no longer seem models of civic leadership. Maybe the view of history these monuments embody no longer seems true. Or maybe it seems true to some of us, and worth defending passionately, and not true, in fact horribly insulting, to others. 
How can the public face of our communities reflect those changes and those divisions? I will return to these issues soon, I promise. But for now, I want to address a less controversial subject. I want to explore the complex, often troubling relationship between monuments and their surroundings. And in this episode, my subject is the monuments of Tavistock Square. Tavistock Square is not one of the better-known or most celebrated of London's garden squares, nor are its art and architecture intrinsically powerful or challenging. But I find the dissonances and harmonies between the monuments, their surroundings, and the history of the neighborhood irresistibly complex and, in the end, quite moving. It is the place, I think, where I can explore most deeply our attitudes and responses to war, even though, maybe because it lacks a conventional war memorial. The square did not have a promising start. In the 18th century, the land was part of the private gardens of Bedford House, the London home of the Russell family, who owned much of Bloomsbury. The Russells had pioneered planned suburban development with Covent Garden over a century before, had perfected the garden square in the 18th century, and now had further ambitions. They would leave their house for something more fashionably close to the emerging West End and build a lattice of new developments stretching all the way from Great Russell Street to what is now Euston Road. The results included Russell Square, Torrington Square, Gordon Square, and, of course, Tavistock Square. But progress was slow. The plans were interrupted by war, which made building materials and credit scarce and expensive. And the Groveners and other aristocratic developers were creating rival neighborhoods in more attractive locations further west. As the most unfashionably eastern of the new squares, Tavistock Square was the lowest priority. So it was laid out in 1803, half-built over the next few years, largely with an enormous house for the developer, James Burton, then it was left incomplete until the 1820s, when building continued to be piecemeal, and the result was visually incoherent and never particularly profitable. So from the start, Tavistock Square was shaped by war, although to begin with, the effect was muted and indirect. For most of the 19th century, the square was solidly, a bit boringly respectable. Its most distinguished and scandalous resident was Charles Dickens, who lived in Tavistock House on the east side of the square from 1851 to 1860. He wrote Bleak House, Hard Times, Little Dorrit, and A Tale of Two Cities there. He also forced his wife to leave the house and family in 1858 after 22 years of marriage and 10 children, publicly justifying his action, in a letter to the Times, no less, by calling her an unfit wife and mother. At the very least, his motives were mixed, since he was deeply involved with his new young mistress, Ellen Ternan. Lots of bloggers and biographers tell that story, so I won't linger. Instead, I will move on to the period just after World War I, when three extraordinary institutions arrived in the square. In 1920, Hugh Crichton Miller established the Savistock Clinic at number 51. He had pioneered psychiatric treatment for soldiers with shell shock 
and the clinic was meant not only to continue their care in peacetime, but also to explore how his therapeutic methods might be adapted for civilian trauma patients, especially children. Four years later, the clinic got a remarkable neighbor at number 52. Virginia and Leonard Wolfe had been living in Richmond, but Virginia had been homesick for central London, particularly for Bloomsbury, where she grew up, and the Hogarth Press, their publishing venture, had outgrown the limited space in their Richmond home. At 52, Virginia wrote Orlando to the Lighthouse and the Waves, and from the basement, the Hogarth Press published T.S. Eliot's poems and the first comprehensive edition of Freud's works in English. Meanwhile, the east side of the square was in chaos. Dickens's home had been torn down and in 1911 replaced by a gigantic headquarters for the Theosophical Society designed by Edwin Lutyens. That bizarre organization, incidentally, deserves a podcast of its own. The society had been overambitious, could not afford the property, and never moved in. At the start of World War I, the building, still incomplete, was commandeered by the Ministry of Munitions as its administrative headquarters. It didn't have a permanent occupant until 1925, when the British Medical Association arrived. Once again, war had interrupted development. The weirdest features of the building are the Gates of Remembrance, which commemorate the dead of World War I, and the Central Fountain, honoring the dead of World War II. Time to pause. Edward Lutyens, the great maker of war memorials, designer of the Menin Gate and the Cenotaph, also made a smaller memorial gate on the site of the wartime headquarters of the Ministry of Munitions next door to the Tavistock Clinic and its shell-shocked patients. The end of Virginia Woolf's life seems almost to be a comment on the brutality of this irony. Blitzed out of two London houses, she and Leonard retreated to the Sussex countryside, where she killed herself. You can find a lovely, delicate memorial to her in the square, in front of where her house once stood. Balancing that monument on the southeast corner of the square is another to Louisa Aldrich Blake, the first woman to qualify as a surgeon in England, known as Madame la Générale, to her colleagues and patients because of her work organizing medical and surgical care for the wounded in World War I. Like the gates at the British Medical Association, that memorial was designed by Lutyens. So in a single location, we have the place from which Britain's weapons production was organized, an institution devoted to the care of victims of such weapons, and memorials both to victims and those who tried to help them. After World War II, the complexities increased. The square had been badly damaged in the Blitz, and the Tavistock Hotel, the first hotel built in London after the war, emerged from the ruins of the clinic and the Wolf's home. In the square itself, three extraordinary monuments appeared. In 1967, the Japanese ambassador and the mayor of Camden ceremonially planted a flowering cherry tree to commemorate the victims of atomic bombs. The next year, a statue of Mahatma Gandhi was unveiled by Harold Wilson, 
sharing the honors with the Prime Minister that day was V.K. Krishnamenon, architect of the non-aligned movement, pillar of the campaign for nuclear disarmament, but also defense minister at the time of the Indian invasion of Goa and the first Sino-Indian conflict in the Himalayas, a defense minister with two admittedly brief wars on his resume, unveiled a monument to the great theorist and practitioner of nonviolent political action. At least in 1994, the square saw a moment of monumental clarity. The composer, Sir Michael Tippett, who created the pacifist oratorio A Child of Our Time and was imprisoned for refusing to serve in World War II, unveiled the conscientious objector's stone. Its wonderful inscription reads, To all those who have established and are maintaining the right to refuse to kill, their foresight and courage give us hope. I wish I could say that after Tippett, the dissonances gave way to harmonies, that the three post-war monuments had effectively made Tavistock Square a place for the celebration of nonviolence and the condemnation of war. But no, the harshest music was still to come. At 9.47 a.m. on the 7th of July, 2005, between the statue of Gandhi and the British Medical Association, former Ministry of Munitions, on the top deck of a rerouted number 30 bus, Hajib Hussein set off an explosion which killed him and 13 other people. Dozens were injured and more would have died if doctors and other medical professionals in the BMA building hadn't been on hand to provide immediate emergency care. In 2008, a commemorative plaque made of Welsh slate was attached to the railings of BMA House. Its design is identical to those at the sites of the other three explosions that day. And in 2018, a memorial was placed in the gardens themselves. It is a huge slab of cast iron disrupting the hedge that runs round the outside. It bears a brief inscription, and then we return to where we began this episode, the names of the 13 who died. Anthony Fatayi Williams, Jamie Gordon, Giles Hart, Marie Hartley, Miriam Hyman, Shahara Islam, Neetu Jain, Sam Lee, Shayanuja Paratasangari, Anat Rosenberg, Philip Russell, William Wise, and Gladys Bundawa. London is an imperial city. It bears the scars of bombardment, of course, in its patchwork of post-war, post-blitz buildings. To that extent, I suppose, it has been damaged, even victimized by war. But it has also been enriched empowered and aggrandized by war, by state violence supporting and enforcing hideously exploitative labor practices, by genocide and ethnic cleansing, by the wholesale denial of human rights, and by the epic, systematic, intentional impoverishment of subject peoples. Londoners were history's greatest slave traders, plantation owners, and drug dealers. They were the empire's shipbuilders and outfitters, the providers of capital, credit, and insurance, which made Britain's brief moment of global dominance possible. London was not only the financial engine and the political capital of the empire, it was where its beneficiaries spent their money, 
and set fashions in food, dress, entertainment, and manners. Unimaginable suffering, centuries of injustice, and millions of premature deaths have made London what it is. And Gandhi was not just the great apostle of nonviolence. He was also acutely, heroically aware that India and other colonies were trapped in cultural and economic, as well as political and military subjection. We can note in passing how strange it is to celebrate an implacable enemy. Would any other country erect a statue? No, two. There's another in Parliament Square to a man who organized a revolution against its rule, whom they imprisoned again and again, whose philosophy and lifestyle were largely a rejection of much that Britain stands for, not just imperialism, but also industrialization, globalization, materialism, consumerism. It is said that Gandhi was once asked what he thought of British civilization. His reply was that it would be a very good idea. The story is probably apocryphal, but I cannot imagine any place in London where a monument to him would not be heavy with irony. Tavistock Square brings its own dark resonances, the ghosts of managers of ammunition factories, of shell-shocked soldiers, of a bombed-out Virginia Woolf and an imprisoned Michael Tippett surround that statue. That's enough for now. Thanks for listening. Next time, we will look at Christopher Wren and Robert Hooke's Monument to the Great Fire. I hope you will join us then. This episode was researched, written, and presented by me, Alan Hertz. My producer and editor is Wilhelm Schenk.